pick up our study on church history. This is our fifth week. That means there's one more week to go. Um, if you do not have a handout, just raise your hand. The gentleman will provide you one. Ian's passing them out. As you can tell, compared to last week, there's a lot more words on the paper. So hope that helps you follow. But I have been chastised already that maybe there's not enough room for you to write. So I guess you'll just have to deal with it. Uh, I don't have any other solutions for you. <laughs> um, but today our topic is, we're going to talk about um, one person only. So we're going to dedicate the next 45 minutes or so to Augustine. That's how I call him. So I don't name, the city is St. Augustine, the, or St. Augustine, I think, and the grass is St. Augustine. But we're going to go with Augustine, and I'm not going to refer to him as a saint either. So we're just going to go with Augustine. Um, so before we get started with the lesson, I want to give you a few quotes that I was able to find about Augustine. Just, this is a huge figure in the history of the church. Um, this one source I use is a church history professor at a seminary. He gave three lectures just on Augustine on a survey of church history. He gave two surveys on Luther and two on Calvin. So it tells you how much of a monumental figure Augustine was and is for the history of the church. Um, just before I get to these quotes, though, just kind of get your mind thinking historically. Um, Augustine's life is kind of during the time that Rome falls. So the Roman Empire is crumbling. Um, he lives in North Africa, in modern-day Algeria. And as... Uh, Rome falls in 410 AD. The Vandals, who came from the north to sack and destroy Rome, proceeded to come down the Mediterranean at some point and were attacking what was left of the Roman Empire in northern Africa. And as Augustine dies, the Vandals are about to take over that area of the Roman Empire in North Africa. So he really is this figure that sees the, he lives during kind of a height of Roman Empire Christianity, and then he dies as it dies out as an empire. Um, so he's that figure. He also is the preeminent theologian of really the um, early part of the church in the 400s, um, and actually sets the tone for theology for the next 1,000 years at least, and even into today as well. So he is a huge figure. So several of the quotes that I have, uh, one historian, Jonathan Hill, says, The whole history of the Western church for the last 1,500 years is the story of Augustine's influence. His influence over Western thought, religious and otherwise, is total. He remains inescapable even over 15 centuries after his death. So this huge figure in history. Roger Olson says, Augustine is the end of one era, the end of the Roman era, as well as the beginning of another. He is the last of the ancient writers and the forerunner of medieval theology. The main currents of ancient theology converge in him, and from him flow the rivers not only of medieval scholasticism, which is the, the Church of the Middle Ages' attempt um, to recover learning, but so not only is he of the medieval scholasticism, but he's also where comes the 16th century Protestant Reformation theology. 
Earl Cairns says, between Paul and Luther, the church had no one of greater moral and spiritual stature than Augustine. So he lives from 354 to 430. His life is marked by amazing God-given talent, a radical salvation, faithful studying and writing, and also devoted service to his church. And that's what we'll talk about today. Um, Let's go to the scriptures, though, and I think this is an imperative Go to Romans 5. We could probably read all of chapter 5, but I don't have that much time. So let's read verses 6 through 14. Actually, we're going to go through the end of the chapter. So starting in chapter 6, or verse, or chapter 5, verse 6 of Romans. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, and much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the law before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for, Lord, the great justification that was made on our behalf by Jesus. Lord, this is the gospel, Lord, that we are sinners, Lord, that we inherited a sinful nature from Adam, Lord, we were born into sin, and Lord, there was nothing that we could do to bring ourselves to salvation, and Lord, you provided that grace to us, it was a free gift through Jesus, so Lord, we worship you for that today. Lord, as we look at the life of Augustine, Lord, we will see your free grace Uh, on display, um, saving a sinner that you had set apart, Lord, from the foundation of the world. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would see that as his conversion 
how it affected his life and affected his view of you and a right understanding of biblical theology. We praise you for that. And Lord, I ask that you would bless this time. Lord, we understand that we are not um, here to exalt a man, but to examine his life, to see how we can worship and exalt you more. So I pray that you would do that in us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, in your <clears throat> exhaustive handout, I've given you a timeline. So let's work through that. The main topics I want to talk about today are Augustine's life. So we're going to go over a brief biography of him. It'll probably be not too brief. And we're going to hit on some major points as we go through that, mainly his um, conversion and uh, a couple other things as far as who influenced him in his early Christian life. And then we're going to talk about his response to several uh, false teachings of the time. Some were heresies. One was not necessarily a heresy, but a false teaching. And then the third thing we'll talk about are some of his writings. Um, really going to see a lot of information here. I hope it's good for you. There is so much information about Augustine that's out there. It's not like I had to find resources for this. They kind of jumped out at me. So there is plenty of work. And the main reason there's plenty of stuff about Augustine is he wrote so much. Uh, there are volumes and volumes of his works that are available to us today. And some of the greatest works of literature coming from the Christian age, I would say, are produced by his hand. So let's look at his life. Uh, he was born in 354 at Thagast in North Africa, which is modern-day Algeria. He was born to, um, his father was a pagan farmer, not a Christian. His mother was a Christian. Her name was Monica. Um, so he was raised with one parent being a Christian and his father not being a Christian. Um, early on, his parents did identify that he was a gifted uh, student, and he had uncommon skills, so they put him in school to learn rhetoric, and he went to Carthage in 370. And when he goes to Carthage, he not only takes up his studies in rhetoric, but at this point in his life, he hadn't accepted the teachings of his mother, so he wasn't a believer, not a Christian, and he, um, his life was marked by debauchery and immorality and sinfulness, and it is um, an intense level of immorality in his life. He succumbed to lust over and over and over at this point in his life as a student, and he was um, full of all kinds of evil and needing of salvation. He even told a story that he began to steal from those that um, had things. Um, and he began to steal, not because he had any want or need, but just because he could get away with it. So that's how depraved and sinful he was. Um, and he's writing this post-conversion and seeing that of himself. Um, so that's, he studies rhetoric in Carthage. He becomes... A Manichae, which is a follower of the religion of Manichaeism, which is a dualistic, quote-unquote, rational religion that was based on astronomy. This idea that there's a force of good over here and a force of evil over here, and you're trying to align yourself with the, the, each, which one of the forces is good or bad. Um, so he found um, that that was a more reasonable faith in his view than that of his mother's. Um, it offered solutions to questions he had about the nature of good and evil. 
So he couldn't accept Christianity because there was only one God. And how could this one God allow for evil to exist? So he accepted the Manichean view of life where there was a dualistic uh, paradigm of gods, a good and an evil, that were warring for uh, the world at the time. And that was, his, that was reasonable to him. He couldn't accept Christianity for two reasons. It was not just because of the nature of good and evil, but he also didn't trust the ancient writings of Christianity. Um, he thought that the language of the Bible was barbaric in nature and that it wasn't refined. So probably had a really elevated view of, of culture and literature of the time. Um, so he not only goes to Carthage to learn rhetoric, he eventually becomes a teacher of rhetoric in Carthage as well. Um, but he flees Carthage because he's disappointed in how disillusioned the students there are, probably much like he was when he got there. Um, so he leaves Carthage and, and believes that the best place for him to go is to Rome, where he will have more serious students. Unfortunately, when he goes to Rome, his lust and his appetite for sin is only increased because it's even more prevalent than it is in Carthage. And he's also surprised to learn that the students in Rome are not any more interested in learning than the ones in Carthage are. So he's in Rome, and he um, is disillusioned, and at this point, he moves on. He's offered a position as an orator in Milan. So Milan, we talked about last week. Uh, we've talked about it a lot, actually, because 313 is the Edict of Milan, where Constantine declared Christianity legal. Um, but last week we talked about Milan because that's where Ambrose was, the famous pastor and bishop of the church in Milan. So he goes there, and he decides that Manichaeism, he's dabbled in that for about eight years, is not right for him. So he decides he's going to go with a different form of religion, and he converts to Neoplatonism, Platonism, which is kind of rooted in Plato, Plato's philosophy that occurred before Christ in around the 300s. And this idea was that through his studies and his contemplations and discipline, he could reach the source of all the beings. He would just contemplate and be disciplined and study more. He could understand the higher power. What was, in his opinion, great about Neo, this Neoplatonism is that there was only one God, so he wasn't dealing with two gods now. So it's a little bit closer to the Christianity of his mother. It also um, he had this idea that, so the Platonic philosophy on some level, it's all about like uh, there's one true form, and that's the God. And then any evidences of good on this earth are just um, substances, forms of the substance. The one substance is the true good. So the idea of Neoplatonism, it's kind of like you throw a rock in the water and it makes a splash, but then you have concentric circles that form around that water. So let's say that the good, the God, is that rock in the water. It's the center. As you get closer and closer to that, or further and further away from that, like those concentric circles are, in, if you think about that, in water, you're further and further away from God. Um, so the idea is to get as close and close as possible to the form or the substance so you can be one of the forms. It's really kind of confusing. It's, I'm not interested in talking about it too much more, but I give you a good idea. <laughs> so he converts to that. So now he's 
so he's, he's, at least on some level, what I'm trying to point out here is he's always striving for something to fill this void in his life. And God's using each of these, these situations in his life to draw him to himself. So it's first his idea that he needs to pursue truth with Manichaeism. And now he's pursuing monotheism in Neoplatonism. And then there's one thing that's more important to him now is that he begins to sit under the teaching of Ambrose while he's in Milan. By this time when he's in Milan, his mother joins him there and is a member of his household. His father has passed away. And she encourages him to go to the local church and hear Ambrose speak. Undoubtedly, he would have known who Ambrose was. Ambrose was not only a great expositor of scripture, he was very eloquent. Um, the secular people of the day went to hear him speak just because he was so gifted. And we talked about that at length last week. So he went to Milan, the church in Milan, maybe just to learn how he could become a better orator. That's his job, so I might as well learn from the best. So he does that, and he said this. So a lot of the quotes I'm going to give you at this point are from his book called Confessions. So Confessions is his work. It's his spiritual autobiography, and in Confessions, he's actually it's, he's writing a prayer out to the Lord. So anytime he's saying, you did this, you did that, it's God he's talking to. He's praying to the Lord. So this is what he talks about in Milan. He says, in Milan... I found your devoted servant, the Bishop Ambrose. At that time, his gifted tongue never tired of dispensing the richness of your corn, the joy of your oil, and the sober intoxication of your wine. Unknown to me it was who led me to him, so that I might knowingly be led to, by him to you. So he, was, wasn't, he didn't see God at work this time, but looking back on his life, he sees God's hand in bringing him under Ambrose's teaching. And this is what he says about his eloquence. He says, I was all ears to, to seize upon his eloquence. I already began to sense the truth of what he said, though only gradually. I was thrilled with love and dread alike. I realized that I was far away from you, God, and far off. I heard your voice saying, I am the one who is. I heard your voice as we voices that speak to our hearts. And at once I know cause to doubt. So he's He's hearing God speak through the preaching of the word by Ambrose. That's what he's saying. So he's, he's starting to understand that he's hearing God um, speak to him through the preaching of the word, yet he hasn't yet been converted. So he began being attracted to the truths of the Bible as Ambrose was teaching. However, he knew that he would have to give up several things in order to become a believer, chiefly his physical pleasures, his lusts, and also his ambitions to pursue a career in rhetoric. Regarding his lust, he said this to God before conversion, give me chastity and continence, but not too soon. So you can see he was enslaved by the sin, and he loved it. It's what he wanted to do. So he refused to throw off the shackles of it, even though he started to understand the truths of God. So I think it's important that we talk about this, the, the inner turmoil within Augustine is very important. We're going to talk about a controversy that he's involved in with a man by the name of Pelagius. And the root of the Pelagian disagreement between he and Augustine is man's goodness. So Pelagius is going to say, within man there is good and he can choose God on his own. And Augustine's going to deny that and he's really going to 
provide us the solid teaching on original sin and the need for God to initiate salvation with man. Okay? So, I think if you have that perspective as we get to that controversy, talking about Pelagius, you can see in his life, he, he's desiring on some level to do godly things, but he's not wanting to give up those things. He needs something else. That's, a, that's that Romans 5 passage. That's why we read it. He needs God's grace to intervene, and it hasn't happened yet. Yet God is slowly intervening in his life in some ways, but not transformative yet. So in 386, after a couple years under the teaching of um, Ambrose, so if you look on your timeline, we're about, I don't know, halfway down, a third of the way down, 386, he converts to Christianity. Um, he says this in the Confessions. I have a couple really long quotes, but I think it's worth you to hear, and his writing is rich in understanding who God is. He says, O Lord, my helper and my redeemer, I shall now, this is his introduction to how he became saved. O Lord, my helper and my redeemer, I shall now tell and confess to the glory of your name how you released me from the fetters of lust which held me so tightly shackled and from my slavery to the things of this world. So there's a, he, has a, he gives a long story about how this happened. And I found this and did not put it in my notes, but I have it here separately. And here's just here about his conversion. So there's this turmoil about him wanting to do, be a Christian, but not wanting to give up his worldliness. That's the struggle and the turmoil in his, in his soul at this point. And this is what he writes in the Confessions. Kind of gives some context of where he is and all that too, so that kind of helps you, I think. There was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I now found myself driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden, where no one could interrupt that fierce struggle in which I was which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger, and with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. So he's thinking, I'm not doing something right here. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. Then he goes on to write, skipping a little bit of it. <clears throat> Still in the garden, I flung myself down beneath the fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying, how long shall I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? All at once, I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say. But again and again, it repeated the frame, take it and read, take it in, re, in Latin, it's tole lege, tole lege. At this, I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of scriptures and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. Okay, so, you know, surely we've all done that. Not sure what to read in the Bible, so I'm just going to open it and point to a verse. And there are some, some uh, parts of Christianity that probably encourage that, and we wouldn't do that. But that's what he did. <laughs> so interesting that this is how he was converted. So I hurried back to the place where my friend was sitting. I seized the book of Paul's epistles 
and opened it, and in silence I read the first passage on which my eyes fell, and it read, Not in reveling in drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. Romans 13, 13 through 14. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. And that's his conversion. Reading God's word, um, knowing that the truth of God's word was where he needed to go. And he was converted and it changed his life forever and it changed the face of Christianity forever as well. That's why we spent so much time talking about his conversion. So, but you can see effort after effort after effort of his own um, to try to save himself and bring him into reconciliation with God. And yet, the ultimate thing was he needed Christ. He needed to arm himself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so he's converted. The next year, he is baptized by Ambrose. And also that year, he decides, along with his mother and several of his close associates, that they're going to move back to North Africa, and they're going to live a life of relative solitude. Um, they're gonna, he's going to be kind of like a monk, but his goal is to further studies and write. So that's what he's going to do. As they're ready to leave, they've made their plans to go back to North Africa, his mother dies. So Monica dies before they get back to Africa. So his faith was tested pretty early there. But he persisted and went, returned back to his hometown in North Africa. And he established kind of a monastic community. Uh, not one that you would think of that's totally abstaining from everything from the world. Um, but definitely did without some of the comforts of the world. So that's in 388. Let's see here. His desire is to study and write. And then he goes to the city, after he establishes the community in Africa, he goes to the city of Hippo, which is very humorous to think about. So this is, in history, this is Augustine of Hippo. Um, so he goes there um, in order to convince a friend to join his group of friends that are going to live out this life of solitude. So he goes to church with the friend. And the bishop there at the time, his name is Valerius, uh, saw that Augustine was there, was aware of who he was, and decided to change his preaching message. It was going to be on whatever the topic was going to be, but when he saw Augustine there, he decided it was time for him to talk about how more people needed to be involved in leadership at the church. So at that moment, <clears throat> so okay, last week we talked about Ambrose and how the people put Ambrose forward as bishop. Well, at this point, the people seized Augustine and brought him forward and, off and said, this man needs to be appointed a priest here in our church. And Augustine doesn't think that's his calling, chooses, he's kind of struggling with them, does not want to pursue uh, the ministry or the priesthood, but he relents and he accepts and he becomes a priest under the Bishop Valerius there at Hippo at the urging of the congregation. So these are not what his plans were. His plans were not to be in leadership in the church. He kind of wanted to live the life like Jerome, who we talked about last week, who kind of became, went to Bethlehem and lived out his life studying and writing and translating um, the Bible into Latin. That's who he wanted to be like. But in 391, he's ordained a priest in Hippo. 
And it's apparent pretty on that he's going to be the successor to Valerius. And there he begins the work of shepherding and writing um, extensively. He writes about theology in a very systematic way. So this is one of the first guys to put a systematic theology in place. Um, so we've kind of gone from, you know, arguing about the Trinity and the Christology, um, the, the, the deity and humanity of Jesus. Now we're to the point in Christianity that we're able to systemize some of these things. So we're, he's going to write about the doctrine of man, the doctrine of God, um, all the doctrine of the church, those type things. Um, <clears throat> yet he didn't just come up with these systematic theology on his own. He was very studious in the prior church fathers, um, and those were very important to him, along with the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Um, Luther says this about him, though, that nothing in Augustine of his, uh, is of his own wisdom, but rather that of the most outstanding fathers, such as Cyprian, Irenaeus, Gregory, Ambrose, and others. So he, like we said, each person's kind of building uh, upon the previous generation so he's still he's a giant standing on the shoulders of several many giants i guess but he's a giant um, so he became the first interpreter of paul and was successful in securing the acceptance of his doctrine by the church so really giving um, systematic theology at play here 392 he debates a man by the name of fortunatus who was a manichee uh, so he's now arguing why that religion that he was for at one point was wrong. In 395, he succeeds Valerius as the bishop of Hippo. So now he's the chief administrator of that church. In 400, he writes his confessions. I'm just going to rattle these off quickly because we'll touch on some of these things. 410, Rome falls. So for anybody that's invested in the Roman Empire and even the church and its relationship with Rome, that's troubling that Rome has fallen. Um, 411, he attends a meeting which condemns the Donatists. 412, he starts writing the city of God. And at 416, Pelagius is condemned. All these we're going to get to. And in 430, he dies. So I said that he died. So 410, Rome falls. 20 years later, the Vandals are making their way across the Mediterranean, and it's almost like they're on the doorstep of uh, Hippo when Augustine dies. <clears throat> Definitely the end of an era as he dies. So, we've made it through the timeline. Three contradicting, he contradicted wrong teaching in three areas, and we're going to talk about these. Um, First two we're going to talk about really quickly, and then we're going to labor the talk about Pelagianism a little bit, because it's a little bit more important for the history of the church. Um, so with Manichaeism, he had a debate with this guy, Fortunatus. He had a unique role to, to address this false religion, since he was a follower at one point. He asserted the authority of Scripture and denied the authority of their prophet, whose name was Manny. Um, he dismantled their arguments by claiming that there is only one God, citing the scriptures as his reference, and that his goodness is infinite. Because that was the two issues, right? It was the scriptures and the nature of good and evil, and the nature of evil primarily. So that's what he argued against. <clears throat> he said the origin of evil is not found in God himself, but in the sinful de decisions of God's creatures. Um, 
He hypothesized that God is not the author of evil, but he affirmed the reality that evil existed and that the creation of all things was done by a good God. So still, this is how he's un, un, undercutting the Mannings. And it helps to put and stamp out the influence of Manichaeism going forward. Another group that had been popular in the preceding century was a group called the Donatists, and he rejected their teachings as well. Now, the, Manich the Man Manichees were not Christians. The Donatists are Christians. So that's why I didn't do a heading heresies, because these guys are Christians. They just had wrong teaching. Um, these guys were followers of Donatists around 350, who lived around 355 A.D. They were orthodox in their views of the Trinity, yet they were extreme separatists that had resided in North Africa. So we think about separatists in our mind. Hey, it's almost Thanksgiving. <laughs> so the separatists are the group of people that broke away from the Church of England and first went to Holland and then came to the New World. They were separating themselves from the Church of England, probably because they thought that the Church of England was polluted by the government and the secular organizations of England. That's part of the reasons. And they weren't free to worship as they um, desired, so they broke away. They were the separatists. The Donatists were the separatists of the day. Um, for them, they believed that the church should always be radically separated from the state, so no involvement in the culture of the day or any involvement with the state. They also believe that the church should always be persecuted and its greater, greatest leaders should be the martyrs. So you don't have many leaders if they're all getting martyred, but that's their greatest leaders. Um, um, so they believe that once somebody submitted to the state over church matters, that they were a traitor, which there might be some truth to that, but then in order for them to be accepted back into the church, the Donatist church, they'd have to be rebaptized. Augustine, though, said, so we've already got this idea that people are becoming Christians in the Roman Empire because it's the legal religion of the empire. People are just becoming Christians because it's the thing to do. They're not really feeling conviction to be Christians. So Augustine promoted the idea in arguing against the Donatists that there's the idea of an invisible church within the visible church. So what he's saying is not everybody that's in the church is a believer. Um, so the church of the day, that they're true believers and unbelievers. And he said that if somebody turned his back on the church in favor of the state, they shouldn't just be, have to be rebaptized. They can come back just through repentance. Um, so he proposed something less than the Donatists and didn't argue that they, the church should be as separate from the state as the Donatists. And that brings us to the third group, and that is Pelagianism. Okay, so Pelagianism... Like I alluded to earlier, its roots are in um, the nature of man. So is man inherently good or is man inherently sinful? Is there anything within man that is going to choose to do right in obedience to God? That's the question that Pelagius is trying to answer. Um, and he's troubled by what Augustine is teaching. So the little bit... So this, Augustine spends 20 to 30 years of his life writing and arguing with Pelagius and his followers about this. And looking back on the argument, I just want to give you this to whet your appetite. He says this, um, <clears throat> in 427 he wrote, um, I guess somebody asked the question, what do you do about man's freedom? He said, in answering this question, 
I have tried to maintain the free choice of the human will, but the grace of God always prevailed. And then somebody asked, why did you invest so much time in this controversy? And I find this, the first part of this humorous and the rest of it um, insightful. He says, first and foremost, because no subject gives me greater pleasure. He loves debating these things with Pelagius. For what ought to be more attractive to us sick men than grace? Grace by which we are healed. For us lazy men than grace. Grace by which we are stirred up. For us men longing to act than grace by which we are helped. So, what did Pelagius teach? So Pelagius lives, he said he is living around the same time of Augustine. He's born in 354, and he dies after 418. I could not find a credible source that told me when he was dead. So let's go with after 418. He was a British lawyer who was a popular teacher. Um, he was also an aesthetic and a reclusive monk. That means he denied comforts to himself and radically uh, separated himself from the comforts of this world. So he comes to Rome to teach, and he is really put off by the indulgent life of Christians in Rome. Okay, so probably a, a, a good thing to be repulsed by. So he was. At the same time as he comes to Rome to teach, he also is studying two works by Augustine. One is On Free Will and Augustine's Confessions. So he's concerned that the reason that there is moral passivity in the church in Rome is due to the emphasis on grace. That's his concern. Um, he believed that if God would forgive all sin, then Christians will just continue to sin without restraint. That was his view in the environment that he was seeing. But then he was even, so he saw this in Augustine's Confessions. You'll see a statement that we say a lot here at Calvary within this long quote from Augustine. But this quote shocked Pelagius um, to the core. And this is the quote from Confessions. My whole hope, remember this is confession, so it's a prayer to God. So when I say you, it's referring to God or your, it's God's. My whole hope is in your exceeding great mercy and that alone. Give what you command and command what you will. You've heard that. You command continuance from us. And when I knew, as it is said, that no one could be content unless God gave it to him, even this was a point of wisdom to know whose gift it was. So what he's saying in, give what you command and command what you will, Augustine's saying, man is dependent on God to give what he needs. Um, God is the initiator. God must do in man what he requires from man. Okay? Pelagius, however, exalted man's freedom, and this was the dispute. Augustine would say, biblically, appealing to the scriptures, that man has lost all ability to obey God as a result of the fall. And this is the totality of original sin. But Pelagius would say, um, since God holds man accountable, then man must have the ability within himself to obey God's law. So that's the crux of the argument. It's pretty minute, right? But it's a big deal. Um, so Pelagius, his doctrine can be summed up in a couple points here. He does not believe that the sin of Adam had been passed down to all of humanity. Um, 
He believed that unregenerate man could do good. Man could live a sinless life. Infants are born without sin. And man's problem is chiefly environmental and not within him. So man is born without sin. And he sins because of the nature around him. This is what Pelagius is saying. Let me say it again. This is what Pelagius is saying. This is not what Matt is saying, nor Augustine. He believed in unconditional free will. He said, all therefore have a free will to sin and not to sin. It is not free. Uh, It is not free will if it requires the aid of God. Whether we will or whether we will not, we have the capacity of not sinning. That's what he says. He says God's grace only entices men's men men's hmm. God's grace only entices men to Christianity. It does not draw them. Um, so that's that's a pretty distinguishing mark. That it's just like a little carrot out here that you can lay hold of versus the active drawing. Um, you know, I think the wooing, but drawing means to drag. That's God's activity in salvation. That's how we understand it. Um, but Pelagius does not believe that, obviously. So Pelagius believes it really boils down to reason over Scripture as authoritative. Um, He's taking things rationally versus appealing to Scripture. Um, And also this was the result of his extreme asceticism and legalism. If you think about Pelagius, he looked, if you guys are familiar with Luther before he became a Christian, just agonizing and agonizing over his sin and that he's felt condemnation, condemnation from God because he was not ever able uh, to achieve a righteousness of his own. And really that's what Pelagius is doing too. Um, Eventually, as Rome is sacked, Pelagius and his followers fled fled from Rome and came to North Africa and then to Jerusalem he left, he went, to, he went to Africa first, he was deemed a heretic, then he went to Jerusalem, um, where Jerome attacked him and rained fire and brimstone on his head, um, with words, I assume. Um, the African church leaders requested assistance from Rome about uh, Pelagius' teaching. They were slow to act. Eventually, his teachings were condemned in Car- at Carthage in 418. And I have an extensive quote from historian Philip, Philip Schaff that I was going to read to you about this. Because this controversy is not dead. This is, <clears throat> this is these are some of the most weighty arguments about the nature of man and the nature of God that still exist today. And this is what Schaff writes about this controversy. The Pelagian controversy turns upon the mighty antithesis of sin and grace. It embraces the whole cycle of doctrine, respecting the ethical and religious relation of man to God. It includes, therefore, the doctrine of human freedom, of the primitive state, of the fall, of regeneration and conversion, of the eternal purpose of redemption, and of the nature and operation of the grace of God. It comes at last to the question whether redemption is chiefly a work of God or of man, whether man needs to be born anew or merely improved. The soul of the Pelagian system is human freedom. The soul of the Augustinian Augustinian is divine grace. Pelagianism begins with self-exaltation and ends with a sense of self-deception and impotency. Augustinianism casts man first into the dust of humiliation and despair. 
in order to lift him on the wings of grace to supernatural strength and leads him through the hell of self-knowledge up to the heaven of the knowledge of God. I would argue that Augustinianism is the gospel, is the Bible, um, as it's gospel explained in the Bible. So that's important. But like I said, um, this argument is not dead. Still, after the church um, rejected Pelagius' teaching, um, some proposed a middle way. Man, this sounds familiar. Remember, we tried to find a middle way between Arianism and Christianity or biblical Christianity. Um, but they're trying to find a middle way here. They would say that the grace of God always, this, this is now the semi-Pelagians, would say that the grace of God always cooperates with the human will because there is a seed of goodness in man. And that places priority of the human will over God's grace. Those folks deny the full devastation of sin and therefore minimize God's work in salvation. The argument is ongoing and it, it continued throughout the church. It's Luther and Erasmus. It's Cal, the Calvinists and the Arminians, the general and the particular Baptists in England. It's Whitfield and Wesley. It's Warfield and Finney. And it's us and biblically-minded churches and non-biblically-minded churches um, are differently viewed churches. Um, crux of the argument, though, is how did Adam's sin affect humanity? The semi-Pelagius says that man merely stumbled and is, in, is sick and that man can pursue God. Augustinianism says man, that all humanity fell with Adam and are unable to come to God apart from Christ. We are spiritually dead, and God must bring man to Christ. That's the argument, and that argument is well and alive today. Um, so there's a lot you can, if you, it's worth reading on this. It's, it's really good stuff, and Augustine is worth reading. I don't think he's impossible to read, just so you understand that. Uh, so he is somewhat readable. These quotes I'm giving you from confessions are not difficult, so that's, I would recommend that to you. Um, Okay, several of his writings that are important. I'm just going to give you these in case you decide to read. Um, years back, Damon, my brother-in-law, did a class with some of the older youth on confessions. Did anybody, anybody do that here? I don't think so. But they actually read confessions and wrote papers about it. It was really pretty neat. That might have been uh, the oldest kids that I've been thinking of. But he wrote the confessions in 400. It was written as a prayer. It's one of the greatest works of all time in all of literature. So let's not even Christianity. It is viewed that way. Um, my beautiful wife and I did take a world literature class together, and the Confessions was in our. Everybody had the Norton's anthology of world literature, uh, where you, it was in there, um, and it is it is thought of very highly in literary circles as well. Um, his this is his spiritual autobiography, and it mixes his theology very well. He also wrote a book called Grace and Free Will in 426. And this is where he argues against the Pelagian exaltation of man's free will. He also wrote on the Trinity. It took him 20 years to write these 15 books. Um, and this is his uh, understanding of the Trinity according to the scriptures. Um, he was the most, this was the most influential exposition of the Trinity in the western part of the church. Remember all those Trinitarian arguments we were talking about the last couple of weeks? A lot of them centered on the eastern side of the church. Well, Augustine takes up the mantle and writes on the Trinity 
in order to provide that to the Latin-speaking church. Um, so he, he um, agreed with the orthodox teaching of one God in three persons who are united in essence, co-equal, and co-eternal. He also wrote The City of God. It took him 13 years to write this. As one might expect from its title, it contrasts the city of God with the city of men, but also deals with issues like creation, time, the origin of evil, human freedom, freedom, divine knowledge of the future, the resurrection of the body, final judgment, happiness, the incarnation, sin, grace, and forgiveness. So lots of things. I did that on fast on purpose, just because there's a lot of information in it. But it took him 13 years. And it's also his response to those that say that Rome fell in 410 and it's because of the Christians. Because that was the argument is Rome didn't fall before Christianity was the legal religion of the time. And at some level, he's arguing with Eusebius, who wrote the history of Christians, who was saying that the history of Christianity and the history of the Roman Empire were meeting together in Rome, in the Roman Empire. And, what, and he saw that as a glorious thing. And Augustine's saying, no, 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 there's a city of man and there's a city of God that's more glorious than the city of man. Um, he also wrote on Christian doctrine, where he gave his views on scripture, hermeneutics, and preaching. And this was the curriculum that was used by the Christian universities, the Catholic uh, universities that were established in the late Middle Ages. So, think about this. He was writing these works around 420 AD. These universities that start, this is medieval scholasticism, around 1200 AD. That's 800 years. That's why it's the Dark Ages. Nothing happened. They took Augustine's works, and he was their primary theology. And that's a good thing, because it does stand the test of time. But it's not like anybody else was doing anything, is what I would argue. Um, but I would give you a few cautionary words about Augustine. Not perfect. There are things we're going to find disagreement on him, especially somebody that's written so much. Um, he believed, this is... This is odd because his commitment to scripture in defending um, this idea of man's freedom and God's grace um, he believed that sovereign grace was bestowed by the church and by its administration of the sacraments so we start seeing that so the church is the one that dispenses that grace um, so to be outside the church was to be out, outside the church church was to be outside redeeming grace so that's so there's kind of an emphasis on the church in his view one could say that the protestant reformation is a triumph of augustine's uh doctrine of grace over augustine's doctrine of the church so it's almost like he's speaking out of both sides and the the reformation is correcting and exalting that one thing that's more important the doctrine of grace over that of the church um in the reformation he is quoted all the time by Luther and Calvin, but he's also quoted by the Catholic people that are opposing him. So he's kind of used uh, completely by both sides of the argument. Um, and probably it's his emphasis on the church dispensing grace to people and that sovereign grace. Um, he also held to an allegorical view of biblical interpretation. Um, and for him, that helped him, under, it brought him to salvation in some way um, it helped him kind of justify the things that he thought were barbaric in the scriptures. We don't agree with that. We don't take an allegorical approach to the scriptures. 
we take a historical grammatical view of biblical interpretation, as many of the reformers do, and of course what he do. But by doing that, he kind of sets up, this is, this is the church going forward. Um, and that's what Augustine, in his desire to um, preach and teach biblically, his view of interpretation then is taken for the next eight, nine, one thousand years, and that's what needs to be reformed as well. Um, because what the Catholic faith was doing during the Dark Ages was saying, there's a secret in God's word. It's in Latin. You don't know it. And it's also only we can know it as the priests because there's a secret mystery behind God's word that you don't understand. And we're going to unpack that for you instead of saying, this is God's word. This is what it says. Understand it and interpret it literally um, according to its historical grammatical context. That's the difference so Augustine is responsible for some of those things too. So we lift him up in many ways and we see problems as well. And you're going to see that with other of the reformers even. You're going to see that you dis we disagree on some of those things. But I commend Augustine's life to you. And I think that if you look at his story of salvation, it's so important to understand that he was a recipient of that free grace of God um, that he so championed. Um, and I think that's, that's why it was important for us to dwell on his salvation experience because that, that experience for him rooted what the truths of Scripture were about. Okay? It is past time, so let us... Let me make sure I don't have anything on my last page. Oh, I do. <laughs> One last quote. Ian Murray says, The old world of Augustine's day has passed away, but the errors that he fought uh, have not. Last quote. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this day. Lord, we praise you that you have blessed us with the opportunity to gather together. Lord, help us as we go to the worship service, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. Lord, may we be changed because of it. Lord, we praise you for this body of believers. May we be faithful to minister each other today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.